All lined to Yad, it's short. He throws. It's over. The Brewers have won the American League pennant. Milwaukee, you have a World Series. Thousands of people streaming on to the field at County Stadium. It is absolute pandemonium. They are surrounding the Brewers. They have defeated the California Angels. Once again, back is the incredible, the incomparable, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up, prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. I want to welcome all of you in this week from the OG Seamhead all the way down to, you know, that, you know, righteous virginal pot surfer who just happened to kind of stumble onto uh, what I got going on here. And here's the deal, folks. Uh, I'm so proud of all the feedback that I have received from all the shows. I've been in discussion with Podbean, and it looks like, it looks like, I will be coming back for another season in January, and there is a lot of exciting maneuvering going on behind the scenes to make this second season even more successful. However, there is one thing that will not change. Like, Ever. I'm going to continue to come through every Tuesday, all 52 of them, with that free baseball smoke. I'm never going to send you a bill for the content in today's busted-ass economy. No Patreon, no crowdsourcing. I'll take care of all the bills around here. All I need from you, my beautiful baseball-minded audience, is for you to smash those follow, download, share, and subscribe icons, and hook a good brother up. If you're on Apple or Spotify, please remember to rate and review me as you see fit. I ain't scared. I do what I do when I do it, and I do it better than anybody else. Facts. Truth is, 
Look, I, I hate to ask my audience for anything. I feel like I'm doing you a service. I shouldn't ask you for shit. But I figure a rate and a review for me is better than me charging you a monthly bill. Rates, reviews, downloads, shares, subscriptions, any type of comments. All these things help me to continue to do what I love more than anything in the world. And that's Talk Baseball. Because... We're all here for a particular reason and path. You don't even need to know the curriculum to know that you are part of the math. That's why I expose my soul to the globe, the world. I'm trying to leave something for these boys and girls. I can't stop. It's why I'm hot. Determination, motivation, dedication. I'm talking to you with my many inspirations when I say I can't let myself for you down. If I were the highest clip on the highest rip and you slipped on the side and you clinched into your life by my grip, I would never, ever let you down. And when my life dims, remember my hymns come from him. It's my words are confirmed by the grace of God. I do dream in color and in pods. One of a kind like Ace over Kingful House. Because whenever I open my heart, my soul, or my mouth, a touch of baseball rains out. And with that being said... It's time to get on this week's topic. Uh, that catcher is coming down. I'm calling all aboard. And I'm really excited about this week. This week I'm going to be speaking on the 1982 Milwaukee Brewers, or as they were affectionately called, Harvey's Wallbangers. In 1982, the Brewers had reason to be optimistic. Uh, they reached the expanded playoffs in the, during the 81 strike year, only to lose to the eventual American League champions that year, the New York Yankees. They were stacked in vets and put in their pretty much everyday lineup. And that was as well as the pitching rotation and that bullpen. This was, without a doubt, the best team in the Brewers had fielded in their young 13-year franchise history. And to be honest, folks, it's still the best team the Brewers have ever put together. And going into this 82 season for the Brewers and their fans, it really did feel like a now or never situation for that team. They were an amazing bunch of characters that simply, <laughs> simply put, they hit the piss out of the ball. The, the nucleus of that 82 team was a group of players that the Brewers mostly drafted and developed in their farm system. The two offensive stars of the organization were clearly future Hall of Famers, Paul Molitor and Robin Yount. Now, Molly played for Milwaukee, 15, that was 21-year uh, playing career, while Yount would spend his entire 20-year career with the Brew Crew. And between the two of them, they collected 6,461 hits in a Brewers uniform, and 411 of them would come in that 1982 season. So, let me see here. Just to, you know, set the foundation here. You know how I like to tell. I'm going to give you the career stats of these two guys right here. They're, they're definitely work, worth it. And let's lead it off, of course, with Paul Molitor. And a side note here. I consider the 1980s like the age of the leadoff hitter. You had Ricky, Molitor, Tim Raines, Willie Wilson, Steve Sachs, Al Bomry. Uh, Vince Coleman, Chuck Knobloch, and it was an exciting time of high OBPs and stolen bases from the dudes at the top. And as far as I'm concerned, 
Molitor is probably the third greatest leadoff hitter that I ever saw. Uh, you know, I would have to put Ricky at the top, just slightly ahead of Tim Raines, and then I would put Molitor in there. But I digress. He played third base, 5.6 wins, a bump replacement, 160 games, 751 plate appearances, 666 at bats with 201 hits. 136 runs scored, 26 doubles, 8 triples, 19 home runs, 71 RBI, 41 stolen bases. He was only caught 9 times. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's efficiency. 41 thefts, only 9 times caught. That's only 3 innings of outs. I can live with that. 93 strikeouts and 69 walks, 300 total bases. He had a 302, 366, 450 slash... 816 OPS and a 129 OPS plus. He led the league in plate appearances, at-bats, runs, and he was also 12th in MVP voting that year. 1982, Paul Molitor. I find it interesting that in 751 plate appearances, he only grounded into nine double plays. And Paul Molitor was a problem in the American League during that 1982 season. The number two hitter, Robin Yount. He was the thunder to Paul Molitor's flash, while Molly was, you know, a genuine problem. Robin was the final solution. He fit so well on the team. He had long, blonde locks. He was still young, spitting vinegar. Uh, had, a, had a bushy mustache. But he was a stone-cold killer. The kind of ball player in 1982 who would look you in your eye, rip your heart out, laughing while he's doing it. So, check out these numbers. 1988-82 shortstop Robin Young. A 9.8 war. AL MVP. Gold Glove winner. 156 games played. 704 played appearances. 635 at bats. 210 hits, which led the American League. His 46 doubles were the most in the American League that year. 12 triples. 29 home runs, 114 RBI, 14 stolen bases, only three times caught. Again, I can live with one inning of outs to 14 thefts. 54 walks, only 63 strikeouts. 367 total bases. That was the best in the American League, as was his slugging percentage. He had a 957 OPS and a 166 OPS plus with a slash line of 331, 379, 578. And I honestly think that because Yount would eventually move to center field, I think we forget how great he truly was as a shortstop on both sides of the ball. And of course, the team's aptly nicknamed Harvey's Wallbangers. They did what their nickname said. They could just flat out rake at historic levels. And I would be remiss if I didn't PowerPoint my way through this offense for you a little bit here. Um, And I can hear a few of you now scratching your head uh, asking, did he just say historic levels? And yes, I did. Using an adjusted OPS, which basically adjusts on-base percentage and slugging percentages for the park and the era, you can see that the 82 Brewers were 
the fifth most statistically potent single-season offense in the history of baseball. Behind only the 1927, 1930, and 1931 Yankees and the 2017 Houston Astros. First baseman, Cecil Cooper. He was the third 300 hitter in that lineup. Smooth swing left-hander who uh, he belted 32 home runs, drove in 121 runs that year, and routes to a uh, 313, 342, 530 slash, and a 142 OPS plus. He also came in fifth in, in AL MVP voting. And I should also mention that Cooper played a fantastic gold glove caliber defense. He was kind of like this... Poor man's American League Keith Hernandez type. So, for those keeping score, Yout wins MVP, Cooper places fifth, and Molitor comes in twelfth. And back in 1980, two years before this season, the Brewers made the greatest trade in that franchise's history when they sent Sisto Lexcano, David LaPointe, and Larry Sorensen to the St. Louis Cardinals for two future Hall of Famers, closer Raleigh Fingers, switch hitting catcher Ted Simmons, as well as pitcher Pete Vukovic. And all three of those players had a tremendous impact on that 1982 team. Fingers and Vuk, I'll hit on them in a bit, but Simba, Ted Simmons here, he was just another one of these offensive pieces that was hard to contain. 23 home runs, 97 ribs that year in 82. Now, the outfield, it had two huge power bats in the outfield. Um, left-handed swinging all-star Ben Oglevy, 30, 34 dongs, 102 ribs. And center fielder Gorman Thomas, who was seemingly always making Birdie the Brewer, you know, take that frothy slide down that board. He dropped 39 dogs, drove in 112. Oglevy was like this streaky bat, but had like this frightening home run capability. While Storm Gorman, he was kind of like the Adam Dunn of his day, a one-dimensional power beast who could break your heart at the bottom of that order. Not to mention they had guys like right fielder Charlie Moore, who was the team's catcher until Milwaukee traded for Simba, and he moved to the outfield. Jim Gantner at second base, he had a 295, 335, 369 slash in 1982, as well as veteran Don Money, whose you know, four-time All-Star career was winding down. He gave up a third base position to Paul Molitor a few seasons before, and he was acquiescing uh, second base to guard uh, Gantner full-time now. He still had one strong season left in his tank as he uh, played the designated hitter position. He had 16 home runs, 55 RBI, 284, 365, 31 slash, and a 148 OPS plus offensively. The 1982 Milwaukee Brewers were first in runs with 891, first in home runs, first in to- and, uh, slugging, total bases, OPS, second in hits, doubles, batting average. Truly one of the greatest single-season American League offenses of any era that doesn't get any recognition as far as I'm concerned. Now, the pitching on the other hand, it was a whole different story. Uh, it was middle of the pack, mediocre at best, until a trade, a trade put them over. In 1982, 15 different men took the bump for Milwaukee. If you nullified Doug Jones and Chuck Porter, who pitched in seven games combined that year out of the bully, that leaves just 13 pitchers to account for over 99% of the team's innings pitched that year. 
So while they weren't the most dominant staff in the history of baseball, they had chemistry, they remained healthy, relatively speaking, and there wasn't really like a lot of moving parts of the staff. And that may have been like a strength for that team, even though it wasn't a dominant staff. The majority of the starts, they went to Mike Caldwell, Pete Bukovic, Moose Haas, Bob McClure, Randy Lurch. And, all right, let's bring it down. Only Caldwell and uh, Bukovic, they had an ERA better than the league average. Only Moose Haas had like a respectable strikeout-to-walk ratio we look for today. Mike Caldwell had been sometimes brilliant, but an equally inconsistent, frustrating pitcher with the Giants and the Padres. He struggled that first year in Milwaukee in 1977, but he was a true badass in 1978. He went 22-9 with 23 complete games, 6 shutouts, and a 2.36 ERA. And in any other year, that would have been Cy Young-type numbers. But, you know, you got to remember here, 1978, Ron Gidry was out of his mind that year. He posted a 25-3 record and a 1.75 ERA. So Caldwell will come in second that year. Now, the ace of the rotation was uh, Cy Young winner Pete Vukovic. And while he was an effective starter, he was sixth in the AL and ERA, 24th in strikeouts. He surrendered the second most walks in the league, as well as the 13th highest OBP against. But Vuk, you know, he led the AL in wins, which was the sexiest pitching stat around before metrics, and he played for division winners. His 1.50 whip is by far the highest whip by any Cy Young winner. And honestly, after I crunched the numbers of that year, you know, the way we do it today with analytics and metrics, I would have voted Jim Palmer or Dave Steve. I should. I probably would have voted Dan Quisenberry before I gave it to Vuk. And I'm not here to sit on Mr. Vukovic. I, I truly mean no dis- disrespect if you're listening to this right now. But facts is facts, right? Thank God for metrics and analytics. This way of looking at stats back in the day, it's truly antiquated. I hear people piss and moan about uh, analytics all the time. But right here, the proof is in the pudding. And Vuk, as a 1982 Cy Young, I don't know, it's not not good, but it ain't as bad as Steve Bedrosen for the Phillies in 1987, so I can live with it. The funny thing is, Pete Vukovic, <laughs> he's probably way better known as a loudmouth Yankee slugger Clue Haywood from the hit baseball comedy classic movie Major League. Uh, he's probably more known for being that character than being a Cy Young hurler. But Vuk was one hell of a baseball character. His his hair was big and unkempt. He wore a goatee when. You know, many guys in that time, they did not. He, he looked like he wore the same uniform since the start of the season. And it hadn't been washed, like, you know, ever. <laughs> and add to this his crazy facial expressions and his tendency to bring that high cheese real tight. And Rook was probably one of the more intimidating pitchers of the 80s now when I think back about, you know, think think on it. The Brewers did have a future Hall of Famer, 1981 Cy Young Award winner in their, as their closer in Raleigh Fingers. 
And Fingers was really good in 1982. Not not quite as dominant as 81 season, but still 29 saves, 50 appearances, 71 strikeouts in 79 and two-thirds innings pitched. 318 batters faced, 2.60 ERA, 1.04 whip, and 1.4, I'm sorry, 147 ERA plus. And as I mentioned, Fingers was acquired from St. Louis when he became expendable with the presence of Bruce Souter. Fingers was acquired by St. Louis just four days before making, uh, before shipping him out to Milwaukee. And he had come over in a deal with San Diego. So, in essence, that trade, it was a 1980s version of a player dump for Whitey Herzog in the cards. Behind Raleigh, there wasn't too much to get excited about in the bowling. Jim Slayton provided some spot starts, long relief. And then after that, you had like this hodgepodge of guys like Dwight Bernard, Jerry Augustine, eating up chunks of innings. But let's be honest, mediocre results. In early September, Biggers was lost in the season with an arm injury, leaving the closer duties to a closer by committee deal. And that would have an impact on that team in the future. And again, I'm not here to bash anyone, just given the raw numbers and details, the greatness of that lineup, it masked a pitching staff that was, quite honestly, decent at best. And the truth is, the winning, it didn't start right away, though. And coming into the 1982 season, as I said earlier, there were many high hopes and World Series aspirations for the Brewers. But there was a five-game losing streak in mid-April. On May 10th, the Brewers began a stretch of 7-14 and baseball against the AL West opponents. By June 1st, their record stood at 23-24, and and they are sitting in sixth place of the seven-team American League East. That's right. That's how long ago this is. Back when Milwaukee was in the American League East. Boy, oh boy, I'm old. The only saving grace is that AL East leaders at that time, the Tigers and the Red Sox, they were clearly, clearly not long-term contenders. The only team in the East to give them pause or the Baltimore Orioles, with Milwaukee seven games back at 23-24. and 24. The front office of GM Harry Dalton and owner Bud Selig, they fired Buck Rogers. Harvey Keene, the batting coach, was elevated to top dog, and immediately, immediately, the Brewers' season turned around. And just a side note here on Keene. Keene became... A Brewers coach in 1972. He even served as an interim manager for the club back in 1975. In the mid-70s, Keene suffered many debilitating and life-threatening medical conditions. He had surgery on his stomach and in his heart. And in February of 1980, he had his right leg amputated just below his knee after a blood clot there. It cut off his circulation. And look, I want to be honest with you, as an 11-year-old kid till now, I never knew he only had one leg. That's amazing that a one-legged batting coach can command the respect of world-class hitters, you know, like Yao, Molitor, Simba, Cooper, Ogilvy, Thomas, Money, Gantner. 
And these guys, they loved Harvey. I saw an interview with Robin Yow where he says, overnight, the team bought into what Harvey was selling, and they were willing to do whatever they had to do to win for that man. On June 10th. Oh, and by the way, I actually Googled that because I wanted to be sure. I didn't want to come on here and say that guy didn't have a leg when he, you know, when he did. And I looked it up. They actually have his fake leg hanging in a bar somewhere in Milwaukee. Google that. Check it out. True story. I never knew that. All those times I saw him on the field, you know, I'm a, I'm an 11 year old kid. I, I never knew that. On June 10th. The Brewers started a 20-8 stretch, and the offense was now nicknamed Harvey's Wallbangers. By the All-Star break, they are white hot, 48-35, tied with Boston for first place. Predictably, Detroit had faded out, while the Orioles, the most feared long-term threat, was coming on strong and sitting at three and a half games out. The Brewers, though, they stayed consistent through August, going 19-11 and 11 into Labor Day, and still holding a three-game advantage over Baltimore, while the Brewers' offense continued to beat the piss out of the ball. The biggest development for the team in September, it actually came on the pitching side. Now, one good and one horribly bad thing. First off, I always like to hear the bad news first, right? The team lost fingers. I already told you about this. Raleigh been developing elbow problems in late August. By early September, he's headed for the DL. And there was always like these optimistic reports that he might be back by the postseason should the Brewers make it. But it never happened. And really, that arm injury, ineffectively, it pretty much ended his career. On a positive note, though, the Brewers packaged up three prospects, sent them to Houston in exchange for another future Hall of Famer, Don Sutton, the former Dodgers superstar pitcher who was, you know, toiling away in obscurity with the Astros and paid immediate dividends for Milwaukee. He went 4-1 in seven starts with the Brewers with a 3.29 ERA. And the Brewers, well, they needed that help. As the rapidly closing in Orioles are nipping at the Brewers' heels, the Red Sox faded out in September, the Brewers still hold a three-game lead, but there are seven games versus the Orioles on deck for the next ten days. It all started with a three-game series at County Stadium in Milwaukee. Baltimore touched Sutton up in the first inning of the opener. Uh, They scored four runs, but Yount, who was... Always an Oriole killer to my dismay. I mean, that guy used to just brutalize the birds. He lost a two-run blast in the bottom half to cut the lead in half. The Brewers scored a third to tie it and then scored four runs in the fifth and they would eventually win 15-6. And, yeah, those Brewers, they they sure seemed to hit when something was on the mound against the Orioles. Uh, We'll revisit that in a bit. On Saturday, the O's again scored four runs in the first, and this time there was no comeback as the Orioles took the middle game and the rubber match on Sunday as well. And the Brewers' lead was now down to two games. Milwaukee went on their final road trip. They took two or three from the Boston Red Sox and Fenway, and now it would come down to four games set with the Orioles to close out the season. 
with the Brewers clinging to a three-game lead in the East. Milwaukee would need to win just one game to clinch the divisional title. Memorial Stadium, home of the Orioles, the world's largest outdoor insane asylum. It was a madhouse. The Orioles fans are waving brooms. They're looking for the sweep. It was also announced that this would be Orioles manager uh, Earl Weaver's last year at the helm. So the Orioles and the fans, they were highly motivated to, uh, you know, watch the birds steal Milwaukee's divisional lead here. And the Brewers came out flat. They looked like a deer caught in the headlights from the jump. And this playoff pressure-like atmosphere, Friday was a doubleheader, and both Caldwell and Vukovic fell behind early and lost to the surging Orioles. In Game 3, Doc Medic was hammered, and before you know it, the Brewers had lost the first three games of this series to the Orioles by a combined score of 26-7. to And it would all come down to one game. Winner takes all, game number 162. This had to happen only once in the history of baseball, the 1949 race between the Red Sox and the Yankees. Uh, The 1982 showdown on paper promised to be even better, as two future Hall of Famers, Jim Palmer and Don Sutton, were set to do battle. With the Weaver retirement impending and playing as like this back storyline, The Brewers, they had a lot to overcome. And you can enter Orioles killer uh, Robin Yount at this point. I mean, I just, it still leaves me speechless all these years later. He uh, homing off Palmer in the first inning, opposite field. He added another home run to left center field in the third. And in the eighth, he bashes a triple and he scores. And the Brewers held a 5-1 to lead at that point with Sutton pitching masterfully. In the air to right, wire to the corner, to the wall. Home run for Robignac lifted to the off-field. And the Brewers break on top. And that is a very important factor to consider. Because in the series here in Baltimore against the Orioles, the Brewers have been in the position of having to come from behind, way behind, and couldn't play their game. Well, as we look at this home run again, it's a vivid evidence of why Yount is so highly regarded for the MVP. His power is to all fields. Remember, and since May 25, when he came back as a starter, that ball is well hit. Deep left field. It's gone. And Robin Yount has hit successive home runs off Jim Palmer. And Milwaukee leads 3-0. to nothing. And he has hit the home runs in the very manner we talked about. One to right field, the opposite field. This one deep up the left center alley. Extraordinary power for a shortstop. Let's look at it again. And this pitch will be upstairs, right in his groove. He got around on it. There was no question about it. And they are hitting Jim Palmer. And it's funny, as I sit here and I listen to this, you know, I just, uh, it, it just brings back so many memories. And Robin Yount was just, he was just such a beautiful baseball player to watch. He really was. And 
I got to be honest with you, though, I'm listening to Howard Cosell, you know, basically call the demise of my uh, 1982 summer, and it's still painful. It's still painful to hear it. But look, I, I always respected this Milwaukee Brewers team. I, I never really hated them. Um, and the bottom of the eighth with two outs and runners on the corner, Orioles catcher uh, Joe Nolan, he pinch hits, a low line drive in the left field, and looks certain to plate those two runs, but Ogilvy slides in the frame through first, and he made the catch right on the foul line. The rally was turned back, and the Brewers would administer the final nails in the coffin as they erupted for, erupted for five more runs in the top of the ninth to put the Orioles down for good in game 162 by the score of 10-1. to 1. But the Brewers' sense of drama didn't stop there as they were set to face the AL West champion California Angels for the right to move on to the World Series. Milwaukee, <laughs> they they would drop the first two games in the best of five series, but they would become the first team to clinch a three out of five LCS after being down the first two games as they won three in a row. Uh, the last two at County Stadium. And the pennant would be clinched when Cecil Cooper hit a two-run single in the seventh to turn a 3-2 deficit into a 4-3 win. And for the first and only time, the Milwaukee Brewers were headed to the World Series to face the Cardinals. California led 3-1 after three and a half. Ben Ogilvy homer to the fourth inning to make it 3-2. It has stayed that way since the fourth inning. The bases are loaded. The pitch to Cooper. Face hit left field liner. One run home. Downing slow coming on. Gander slides. He's safe. The Brewers lead 4-3. to three. Cooper delivers. Wow, what a big two-out hit by Cecil. 4-3 Milwaukee. Off Louis Sanchez. The bases loaded. Right drive to left. Listen to this ball. And that hit right there, ladies and gentlemen, would clinch that division, uh, would be the nail in the coffin against the California Angels. And now the Milwaukee Brewers and the St. Louis Cardinals are set to match up in the 1982 World Series. It was coined the Sud Series on account of St. Louis and Milwaukee being known for their beer brewing industries. The Brewers, that year, it hit 216 home runs, while the Cards had only hit 67 as a team, and that's fewer than Ogilvy and Thomas combined. The Cards had built their reputation and team on solid pitching, exceptional defense, and aggressive run-manufacturing offense in a style that would be called Whitey Ball after Herzog. The loss of fingers from Milwaukee, it may have been the difference, though. In Game 1, the Brewers would pound card starter Bob Force, beating the cards 10-0. Mike Caldwell pitched a complete game, allowing only three hits. The Brewers' offense was led by Paul Molitor, who had a World Series record five hits and two RBIs. Robin Yount added four more hits and two ribs himself, while former cards catcher Ted Simmons dropped dong. And uh, Jim Gantner had a two-run triple himself. In Game 2, 
The cards tied up with a 5-4 victory. The Brew Crew again drew first blood behind RBIs from Charlie Moore and Robin Yell. And Ted Simmons, second home run of the series, and put the Brewers up 3 to nothing in the top of the third. But the Cards would cut that lead to one in their half of the third when Tom Herr knocked in rookie Willie McGee and third baseman Ken Okerfield drove in Herr with a single. The Brewers made a 4-2 in the fifth when a Cecil Cooper single drives in Robin Yount, who had doubled earlier. Cardinals catcher Daryl Porter, he would tie in the sixth with a two-run RBI double. And then in the top of the eighth, the effects of not having fingers around in the bully, it, it, it's starting to be felt. With one out, Pete Ladd is pressed into service as the closer. He walks Lonnie Smith to load the bases. Then he walked pinch hitter Steve Braun to force in the go-ahead run, 5-4. to four. And it could have been much worse as the next batter, McGee, lined out the short for out number two. And Ozzie Smith, you know, it looked like he had a pair of base hit. He hit the runner, Steve Braun, as he was running third base for the final out. Suter comes in, he pitches a clean knife, and he picked up the win to even the series at 1-1. One to one. Joaquin Anahar and Pete Vukovic were locked in a pitcher's duel in Game 3 until the 5th when Willie McGee hit a three-run home run. The Cardinals had a 2-1 to 7th off of Vukovic, off the RBI double by Lonnie Smith, and another shot by McGee, this time a solo. And McGee had himself a game with a couple defensive gems as well. Uh, the first one came while running down a deep drive by Molitor, and he robbed Gorman Thomas of a home run in the ninth inning. In the seventh, with one out, catcher Ted Simmons smoked a line drive of Andujar's kneecap, and he would be forced to leave the game. The Brewers would load the bases, but close their pursuiter. Yeah, that guy was a beast. He would, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm throwing fork balls all day. He got the final outs of the inning. Cecil Cooper accounted for the Brewers' lone runs with a two-run homer off Suter in the eighth. But it wasn't enough as St. Louis won 6-2, and it took a 2-1 lead in the series. Game four in Milwaukee, six innings. It looks like the Cards are going to choke the Brewers out here and take a commanding 3-1 lead in the series. Carl Cards hurler Dave LaPointe, who, if you remember, was part of that deal for Simmons and uh, Fingers and Vukovic. He holds the Brew Crew to three hits in six innings, while the Cardinals' offense scored early for a 5 1 lead. Two of those runs, they came in the second on a crazy two run sack fly by Tom Herr. And it played at both Willie McGee and Ozzie Smith. And, folks, you got to see this thing. Push, pause, go to your Google machine, and you'll see Ogilvy takes too much time getting that ball back into the infield. And then Ozzy, and his heads up base running, he takes advantage of the lackadaisical defensive play. And quite honestly, folks, that's why he's the wizard. But in the seventh, the Cardinals imploded. With one out, Ben Ogilvy reaches first. When the solid gold-gloving first baseman Keith Hernandez tosses an errant ball wildly to the point covering the, ball, the bag on a ground ball. So man on first, Jeff Lanty came in in relief, and he got the next out, which should have been you know the final one if not for that error. And the Brewers would make Hernandez and the Cardinals pay for that miscue. 
They scored six runs on an RBI double from Cooper. And RBI singles by Yout and Gorman Thomas. Milwaukee never looked back. And they won 7-5, tying the series at 2. Game 5 at County Stadium. And saw a pitching rematch of Game 1. Mike Caldwell versus Bob Force. And Caldwell would get a second win of the series with a 6-4 victory. The offense was paced by AL MVP Robin Yount, who dropped Dong on Force's lips. And the Brewers are now headed back to Bush Stadium for two possible games with a 3-2 advantage. Game 6. It was hampered by two rain delays that lasted over two and a half hours. St. Louis is able to stave off elimination with a 13-1 blowout. Catcher Daryl Porter and Keith Hernandez both had two run bombs. And Hernandez had an RBI single as well as rookie pitcher Jack Stuper. With the help from the rain delay, was he was able to go the distance. He gave up only four hits in the whole game. On the flip side of the coin, Brewers starter Don Sutton, who had ironically benefited greatly from blowout wins. Um... Thanks to Harvey's wallbangers, he didn't fare so well with the rain delay. Which leads us to Game 7. Bush Stadium, October 20th, 1982. And once again, Joaquin Adelhard is tendered name. He'd be taking on AL Cy Young winner Pete Vukovic. And the game was deadlocked at zeros until the bottom of the fourth when the Cardinals struck first. Taking a one nothing lead on a Lonnie Smith RBI single. Ben Ogilvy would tie it up for Milwaukee in the fifth with a solo shot. And the Brewers would then take a 3-1 lead in the sixth when Jim, Jim Gantner scores on an error. Error. When Jim Gantner scores on an error and Cecil Cooper drives in the sack fly. In the bottom half of the sixth, the wheels of history are set in motion as Vukovic is in trouble. With one out, the Wizards singles. Lonnie Smith, Smith pushes him to third with a double. And Harvey Keen, he's seen it up. He goes to the bowling for Southpaw Bob McClure, McClure, who by Game 7, you know, he's absorbed a loss in Game 1. He picked up saves in Game 4 and 5. So he's putting in work and... But fatigue is a factor here now. This is Game 7, of course. And this is also where some of Harvey's tactics are a little questionable, to be fair. McClure comes in and intentionally walks Gene Tennis to load the bases with one out to face Keith Hernandez. Now, sidebar, if hindsight is twenty twenty, well then here's what I'm laying down for you to pick up. I'm not sure why you're making a pitching change to intentionally walk someone right out of the bullet. I've never been in favor of bringing in a reliever to intentionally walk the first batter. The guy on the mound already should truly be able to throw four fucking balls. Having a relief pitcher come in to do that can, you know, alter the mindset, the guy's whole makeup from the jump. You tell relievers all year, don't put guys on, don't put guys on, don't put guys on. Now you're like, come on in the game, put this first guy on and get the next one. That's how, you know, look, I, I disagree with Harvey on that move. Awesome. Why are you walking anyone to face Keith Hernandez in his prime badass years? I mean, certainly, why are you walking 1982 Gene Tennis to get to him? It's not like this is 1972 Gene Tennis. I'm just not crazy about that move there. 
But that's just me. That's just my opinion. Who the who the hell am I? Right? I wouldn't mind knowing what your opinion is, though. But for now, I digress. So, of course, Hernandez ties the game with a two-run single. George Hendricks with driving Keith with a single to put the cards up four to three. St. Louis would get two more runs in the eighth on RBI singles by Steve Braun and eventual World Series MVP Daryl Porter. And it would be the Cardinals in Game 7 of the 1982 MLB season that would end the amazing run of one of the most explosive single-season offenses in the history of the game. And folks, they were exciting. I, I loved and respected that team so much. I loved watching them play and just mashing the ball out of the stadium. It was fun watching it. You know, it was like run and shoot NFL, you know, like the old Houston Oilers, man. It was it was fun. But it was also the first time in my life as an 11-year-old baseball fan that I learned exactly how valuable pitching was to a championship team. I learned lessons from that 82 season. I remember digging into my encyclopedias and studying championship pitching after watching the mighty Brewers fail. And I began to notice it's much easier to win with great pitching making up for mediocre hitting than it is vice versa. The 2017 Astros, 1982 Milwaukee Brewers, they are the only two pennant winning clubs to have such a wide chasm between adjusted ERA and OPS to benefit the bats. Both of those teams carried their pitching struggles into the World Series, but while the Astros continued to rake, the Brewers, they just ran out of gas. The Brewers came up three innings, nine outs short, and one has to wonder if the presence of a healthy fingers could have made the difference. He probably would have, given all the hours that are all the all the innings that McClure was the innings and the number of pitches that McClure was coming in, and you know high leverage situations. It probably would have given Keane like this, you know, Slayton McClure fingers trio on the back end. And we can only imagine if Fingers would have been healthy on that team. You know, and let's be honest, the, the Cardinals' defense was amazing in that World Series. I mean, they made some of the most amazing plays, especially on the carpet in St. Louis. But that 1982 Brewers, they were a team that overcame adversity at every turn. They, you know, you know, from winning that final regular season game in Baltimore after getting blasted the first three games to win the AL East, and then overcoming an 0-2 start in the ALCS to win three straight games versus the Angels, which, of course, you know, set up the infamous Sun Series with the Cardinals, or, you know, with the Brewers falling just nine outs short of that city's first World Series championship. The city of Milwaukee had still held a parade following that World Series, celebrating the journey of a team that they will never forget, nor will I. The citizens of Milwaukee to this day, they always tell Paul Molitor that the 82 team is their favorite Brewers team of all time, to which Molly will usually reply, yeah, I love that team too. We always thought we had, you know, one more run in us to get back there. I I hope one day we are replaced as everyone's favorite team around here by a team that actually brings home that World Series title for this city.
And folks, I think that's where I'm going to wrap this puppy up. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed telling it. And I was a huge fan of this team, even though they broke my 11-year Orioles heart. They, they, they were hard not to respect. I mean, it's not like they're the Yankees or the Red Sox, right? Ah, blah, 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 blah. I'm just kidding. But no. Gallup, Molly, Cooper, Oglevy, Fingers, even Pete Bukovic, a.k.a. Clue Haywood. I mean, just an exciting, fun team to watch. I've, I've never covered a team here at Backwards K-Pod that came up short in the World Series quest on a show yet. So, this story was challenging in its own way for me to put it together. Again, thanks for spending your time here with me. You could have been doing a million of other things, but instead, you spent it with me. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. There are so many things out there uh, about the 1982 Harvey's Bangers related. Uh, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, there are plenty of books. I saw a signed baseball for sale by every member of the 1982 Harvey Wallbangers for uh, $300 on Amazon. I saw signed po- programs. There are videos of dudes like Robin Yount, Gorman Thomas, Bob Euchre, who is truly pound for pound the funniest guy in baseball. You know, there's all these videos of these dudes and, and more recounting that glorious season on YouTube. And by all means, take a look. A lot of stuff there, a lot of great stories. And you can tell that 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 clubhouse was very, very close. So, folks, you can find me on Facebook at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network group page. Uh, The show Twitter's handle is back underscore K underscore podcast. And please remember to rate and review, follow and download all that good stuff. That keeps me doing what I like to do, baby. And just like the Hydra. I chopped the head off one shit. Did I just say hi, Joe? Ah, That's a Freudian slip, right? And just like the Hydra, I chopped the head off one show and another one appears in its place. Next week, I'll be telling the story of former Orioles icon manager, Mr. Earl Weaver. Probably... Probably the most influential person in my life when I was a kid. He he really had an impact on how I look at the world and what it takes to win. Life lessons I could never unlearn. But hey, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid... Sitting on the couch with their nose in the phone looking bored AF. Take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the death.